Hello, my name is E.J. Schultz, Assistant Managing Editor for AdAge, and welcome to the AdLib Podcast, weekly discussions with newsmakers in the marketing, media, and agency industries. On this week's episode, we are joined by Ann Mukherjee, Chairman and CEO for North America at Pernod Ricard, the marketer of brands like Absolute Vodka, Jameson's Whiskey, and Malibu Rum. Anne joined the company late last year after serving as CMO and then Chief Commercial Officer at SC Johnson. Before that, she had a long career at PepsiCo, including serving as CMO for Frito-Lay North America. On the podcast, Anne talks about what it takes to move from the CMO to the CEO seat. She also discusses Pernod's decision to pause social media spending in July during the Facebook boycott and why the company decided to come back in August. Plus, she updates us on a crowdsourcing app Pernod is building to help consumers identify hate speech. Anne, who was born in India, also talks about her experiences as a woman of color executive and what marketers and agencies need to do to make sure more people like her can climb the executive ranks. But first, this podcast is brought to you by Dun & Bradstreet. In today's unique environment, it's getting harder and harder to hit your sales and marketing quotas. Dun & Bradstreet can help you focus where the opportunities are hottest. Introducing D&B Buyer Intent, a solution that helps organizations identify their in-market audiences that are displaying early stage buying signals for your products and services before they ever hit your website. To help find out how many in-market buyers you may have, visit dnb.com forward slash intent. And now, my conversation with Anne. Hi, Anne. Welcome to the AdLib Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be on. So I have a lot of ground I want to cover with you today, but I wanted to start out with some some more recent news, and it's news that everyone's been talking about lately. And Pernod confirmed about a month ago that um, the company would be pausing all social media spending, one of many companies doing so in light of uh, what Facebook has been facing. So now that uh, we're sort of almost to the end of July, I'm curious if you can update us on how it's going, if you plan to come back, and kind of what you've learned through the process. Yeah, no, it's... um so look, I, I want to be upfront and uh, very clear that you know our our boycott was not just against Facebook; it was against the platform. And so there are many companies um, that have similar issues to what Facebook does, which is around transparency, around how they're managing their platforms against misinformation and hate. So we did um, we did stop all social um, paid social media in the month of uh, in the month of July. But here's the thing, um, you know, this is not the first boycott or me stopping social media, whether it's at this company or any former company I've been at. Um, this has been an issue that's been going on for years. Um, and it's evolved over time. It's evolved from, you know, what kind of money in return are we getting from the media that we're spending? It's about, it's been about brand safety. It's been a, about, you know, uh, privacy. So there's been multitude of issues and now the most recent being around their algorithms around, you know, inciting hate or misinformation, et cetera. So look, here's the biggest thing that I've learned, not just in this month, but over the last few years. What happens August 1st? What happens after this boycott? What happens after the next boycott? And I think that's the biggest question that we're asking ourselves. And we have to remember, we live in an age where it's not just return on investment. It's about return on responsibility. 
And we as advertisers are the ones who are funding these social media platforms. That's how, that's the revenue model. So we as advertisers have to start taking responsibility. And that's probably been our, our biggest aha. And, you know, it's not about us solving the problem, but it's us being a part of the solution. Um, and so that's how we're thinking about it. And, um, you know, we've got some things planned that we think will do that. And I want to get into that in a minute, but um, do you expect to turn everything on back on next week? I mean, it's all, it's going to be August next week. So, yeah. Um, so we have, we have decided to resume um, our paid content and, you know, for two reasons. I think first, um, look, we still believe that social media is an incredible way and a very powerful way to engage with our consumers, um, especially if we're going to continue um, to collectively to stop the spread of coronavirus through social distancing and physical distancing. Second, we believe that building um, what we're going to talk about in a few minutes, um, a, a hopefully a, a solve, one solve, to this problem, we are trying to be responsible as we turn back on our social media. Did Facebook in particular do anything that uh, in the past month, you know, they've made a series of announcements about how in their view they're addressing this. Are you satisfied or do you want to see them do more? I, I want to see all social platforms do more. Um, and, you know, I've, I've been talking to all of them and, uh, including Facebook. And, you know, it's it's not that they're not trying to take measures. They are trying to take measures. The question becomes around transparency, which is the measures that you're taking, how do we know those measures are actually working, that we are seeing it actually create a change? And I think it's in that transparency that all of us kind of feel like, you know, we need to play a bigger part. Did, from the business perspective, I mean, there's a reason you're on social and you just mentioned it. I mean, I believe you, I'm guessing you think it works. So in the past 30 days, did you notice, um, like, were, was your advertising less effective, just as effective, more effective? What did you notice? What, what I will tell you, honestly, is in the short term, in a four-week period, it's hard to measure, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, so, you know, we tried um, to make sure that we used other non-social platforms to still get our, you know, brands out there. Um, you know, did we take a short-term hit? Probably. Um, but at the end of the day, it was still the right thing to do. Um, and so, you know, moving forward, these are where the eyeballs are. And the, the, the fact of the matter is I have to be where the eyeballs are, but I have to do it in a responsible way. Last question. And, and I want to ask about the app in a second, but on this particular topic, did you discover anything new in the last, like that, um, Feel free to name drop if you another platform or some other method of advertising that this forced you to kind of discover that you might use going forward. Um, you know, look, we're always on the hunt for um, understanding uh, innovative ways to connect with our consumers. Um, you know, and I don't want to give up anything proprietary, but uh, you know, clearly it has made us rethink um, how we think about uh, connecting. And creating ways to connect in ways that, you know, might give us an advantage in the marketplace. So we, you mentioned that there's a responsibility in your view for advertisers. And so I know part of what Pernod's doing is, is you guys announced uh, at the beginning of the month when you announced your social spend or pause that you were going to be creating an app to help consumers identify hate speech 
and then I believe communicate that to brands. How is that going? Is it up and running? Is it? Are you hopeful that it's going to make a difference? So listen, um, yeah. One of the things that you know, people who know me uh, and know me in my career, um, I'm all about uh, being bold and um, doing a lot of risk taking. But to do that, you have to be thoughtful. So you have to study. You have to learn before you go do it. Um, it's interesting. You and I were just talking about Crash Super Bowl. That's another example where, you know, overnight we said we're going to do something really different and crazy. But we did it be by being thoughtful. Um, and that's what we're exactly doing with this app. Um, and so, you know, we are taking the time um, to, to actually go through the design um, and the building. And, yes, this fall we will be launching and we will launch in a way where we will continuously learn. Uh, we're putting a massive amount of investment into this. Um, and it's not just something that we, it first started as being, again, as I said, responsible about, you know, how we put our monies out there. So this, you know, instead of just an ROI, we were trying to do a, a, a ROR return on responsibility. It's now turning out to be even bigger than that. And so um, we have an ability to figure out how this becomes a part of how our brand will behave. Um, and so it's, uh, we're learning a ton as we got into the space. Oh my gosh. And so we're designing something I think that's even cooler than what we had first envisioned. So that's why we want to take the time to do it right. It's going to be out this fall. For people who haven't followed it too closely, can you just give us a quick high level description of how it might work? Sure. You know, look, it, the whole uh, idea uh, came from my CMO, Pam Forbes, and, you know, she came to us from Disney, and she uh, has a ton of experience in this space of social manipulation, um, and they've seen a ton of it on Disney with their movie uh, properties and their brands. And so, you know, she came into our company, you know, she started asking the question around, look, if, if crowdsourcing can reinvent and disrupt multiple industries, think about ways, right? We now crowdsource GPS. Um, we have multiple examples of this. She's like, why can't we crowdsource this whole issue of, of sharing responsibly? And, you know, um, she, you know, made the, made the observation that, um, you know, we need eyeballs. This is massive amounts of data. It's no AI in the world can pick up everything because there's a lot of gray matter, right? And so what she basically said is, let's crowdsource this issue and let's give a voice to those consumers out there that are seeing hate that is seeing misinformation but they feel they have no way to either have their voices be heard or have an advocate on their side and so this is a step it's one of many steps that we all have to take but it's a step for us to use our advertising influence to hold these consumers who see that out there and for us to be able to, to, to make that transparent to these social media platforms and ask them, are you going to take it down? And if you're not going to take it down, why? And it's as simple as that. And so um, we're excited that we could be a part of that solution. And this sounds like something that's not necessarily tied to your brands per se. Like, so it's, you're not like... Um this could potentially benefit uh, uh, some of your competitors, maybe, if, if people use the app hey. and flag any. It's basically flagging any content, right? It doesn't have to be That's surrounding exactly. your particular ads or anything, right? That's exactly right. Look, at the end of the day, um, we all have a responsibility in the industry. And so if this is something that we can start and other people can take advantage of, we invite other advertisers to do the same thing, right? So um, this is something that we think, we hope will start a movement, not just among consumers, but among advertisers. Um, and while ours will be a branded product, 
anyone can brand it for whatever brand they think is is appropriate. So moving on, um, you've been at Pernod now for um, since the end of last year, is that right? Yeah, or, I started okay. December. Yeah. So what a time, right? And yes. what a time to start a new job, especially <laughs> at, a, at a liquor company. Um, how's it going? I know you, um, your company kind of put out their earnings recently and actually kind of gave a more optimistic outlook than what it was originally given. I think it's the, the, the alcohol industry is just so uh, interesting because there's this dichotomy of obviously so many bars shut down, so you're losing that business, but, but then, you know, the, the store purchases have really been strong. How are you guys faring right now? Yeah. So what I'll tell you is, um, you know, Pernod Ricard is a an incredibly entrepreneurial company. It 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 values it. You know, we're a company that believes in conviviality, this notion of bringing people together in moments that matter. It actually transcends transcends into the culture of the company. And I will tell you, because we have been, I think, so innovative and entrepreneurial. It has really helped us deliver results that, you know, right now that you just saw on, on the, our latest earnings release that, you know, we're, we're faring a bit better than, than what we had anticipated. And that for us here in North America, that transcends not only to our business, but how we have done our business. So, you know, you know, March 16th, I still remember March 13th is, you know, when for me, this COVID thing really exploded. By March 16th, you know, my people in my plants had already figured out how to make hand sanitizers. And two days later, you know, we got approval from, you know, the Trump administration through Peter Navarro to actually start producing it. By week's end, we were already producing hand sanitizers in addition to producing what we needed for our business. So it's not just, you know, the business itself, but it was the purpose behind the business to help our first responders, both in Canada and the United States. And so... That's the kind of company that I've joined. And I got to tell you, it's been for someone like me who loves to challenge and, you know, think differently and go out there, you know, taking bold risks. This is a company that is, it's, it's designed to do that. It's, it's an incredible, incredible group. And you obviously have a CMO background, so I'm, I know you have an interest in, in marketing more than the average CEO, perhaps. And we'll get into that in a minute. But can you give us a quick overview on how you guys pivoted your marketing during this time? Um, changing your messaging, spending yes. media in different ways. Obviously, like we mentioned, you know, the bars are only just kind of coming back. And some of them have had to take a step back in some states. Um, how are you viewing it? Yeah. So, you know, this goes back to, again, consumers today don't, just don't want to buy brands. They want to buy into brands. And so our ability to really talk about that, whether it was our Jameson um, uh, campaign um, that started highlighting very quickly how we were supporting bartenders here in the United States. I mean, Jameson is a huge um, bar brand. And the fact that, you know, there's so many people out there that had lost wages. And so not only did we give to that cause, but Jameson, you know, started creating um, their own kind of online virtual training for bartenders during that time. Um, so it got really creative, not just in terms of what the brand stood for for the consumers, but what the brand stood for in the industry. And I think that pivot really, really changed the way we thought about content and how we went out there. Um, you know, right before the COVID hit, our absolute brand started talking about responsibility. Um, and you're going to see more of that come in and now how that's kind of taken a quarter turn of what responsibility means in COVID. 
And so it's, it's helped everyone kind of pivot the way they think about the brand and giving people in this, in this very difficult time reasons to feel good about buying into these brands. Since you brought it up, let's talk about that absolute campaign. This was back in February before COVID really in the U.S. Um, it was called Sex Responsibly. Can you can you kind of give us an overview of, because I think it was it was seen as sort of a courageous courageous campaign for, for a brand. So can you kind of give us a, a up to speed on what that was and how it's being used sure. now? Yeah, sure. You know, it was, it's interesting. Absolute has been a brand that's been about um, what I'll call cultural provocation for decades. And um, it's always been about the power of inclusion and the power of, you know, saying things in society that needed to be said. Um, And this notion of, you know, all brands, everyone in the industry talks about drink responsibly. And that's right. We've made tons of progress as an industry about that. But the issue is drinking responsibly has many, many shades to it. Um, and this notion of consent is a very, very gray area. And one of the trends that we were seeing, especially among our consumers after the Me Too movement, was this notion of consent and people talking about it and feeling that companies needed to take a much bigger stance about it. And so that's what started the idea around you know, us saying more than drink responsibly. Drinking responsibly has other responsibilities associated with it, which is sex responsibly. So if you are in a cab and, you know, you're giving somebody a lift home, that doesn't necessarily mean a yes. You know, if you swipe right or left, that doesn't mean a yes. You know, this notion of a yes is a yes, and you have to hear the yes. And a lot of people out there are using alcohol as a weapon against victims. And we in the industry have to be able to be courageous enough to say that's unacceptable and we don't stand by it. And so for those of you out there, stop it. And that is the conversation that we started to create. And it's exactly why we did it. People started talking about it. People needed a mechanism to feel comfortable that they weren't being, you know, uh, how do I talk about this? Or is it okay to talk about? Of course it is. And we want to bring that to the forefront. So you, as mentioned earlier, you spent a, a large portion of your career in the CMO role and marketing jobs. And then this, is this, this is the first time you've held a CEO role? Is that, is that right? First time C, CEO role, but I've held business operating roles at SC Johnson, my formal former company. So I've been getting ready for this moment. <laughs> so what's the transition been like? And if for, for the CMOs out there in the audience who might have the aspiration of being a CEO, what would be some of your advice to them as you kind of get, to be noticed as a person that couldn't make that leap. And then once you're in the job, how to, how to actually do it. Yeah. I think, um, first of all, I think, look, in my world, I've always kind of um, seen CMOs in kind of two buckets. There are ones that I call, you know, equity CMOs. They love building brands. They, you know, the art of, of the creation and, and creating these kind of legendary brands and their stories. I mean, uh, and I do have a passion for that. Don't get me wrong. But I think there is there is another one, which is to say, now, how do you take that and become a commercial CMO and really convert all of that into, into business building and how brands can build businesses and P&Ls? Um, and so, you know, throughout my career, um, that's where my passion has laid. And whether it was I was at PepsiCo or at Kraft or, you know, SC Johnson or here, I've always tried to connect the fact that if you truly want sustainable growth in your market share, profitable, sustainable growth in your market share, you have to link it to demand. It isn't about supply. 
It isn't about whatever I can make you a buy. Those days are gone. Consumers are in charge today. So if you don't have this notion of predictive analytics and, and data to understand economic behavior, to drive your brands, to build businesses, and, and how you do that has to delight the consumer. It's got to feel like you know they're buying into something really beautiful. But behind that has got to be a science. And that is where my passion has laid. And when you do that, now it's not just a consumer operating system for marketing. It becomes a business operating system to drive your P&L. And so that's how I got to where I got because I wasn't just looking at the brands and the consumers. I was looking to how did that connect to how we sourced and got procurement and, you know, how we manufactured our products and, you know, how, how do we make money at the end of the day and understanding that final last mile to, to selling in store. And so for those who are CMOs today, and I think more CMOs need to be CEOs because we're going to a world of demand. And there's too many companies that if they're not doing that, they're gone. They're out of business. So CEOs have got to understand how to link demand to sustainable, profitable business growth. And you can do that because there's no better training than as a CMO. Why do you think more CMOs haven't been able to make that leap, though? You know, I look, I think it's a, this is a, a lot of people have thought about marketing as the black box. You know, it's the art. They're the ones that do the advertising and that's their only job. And I think in today's world of performance marketing, in today's world where we're seeing, you know, first party data, where we're seeing advanced data in terms of being able to target people, I think now the shift is becoming um, this notion of it's not just enough to do the art of marketing. You need to really understand the business of marketing. And I think there's just some people who were raised, you know, in the world of, you know, the art of marketing and they feel great about that. And I think some of the greatest CMOs have lived in that space and, and that's great. But I think now it's telling people that now you have another chance. If you, if you want to go that CEO route from CMO, that's the pivot you're going to need to make. And um, you grew up in India, right? Or you, yeah, part of my, born, born in yeah. Born in India. And, um, you know, there's a, obviously a large conversation occurring right now about diversity and diversity and, and marketing and advertising industry. I would love to get your perspective. Uh, we hear a lot of, uh, you know, there's been a lot of stats released, especially on the ad agency side about lack of diversity in leadership positions. What is your take on the progress that has been made and needs to be made? And what are the keys there for, for really kind of getting more people like yourself into these roles? Yeah, I have to tell you, it's a big passion point of mine. I'm so glad you asked. And, um, you know, with all the major networks, advertising networks, I've spoken to all of them about this. Um, you know, if we do not start creating, and, and we're already a bit behind the eight ball, if, you know, advertising agencies, media agencies, whatever, if they do not have very good development plans for um, minority creatives, um, especially in the creative side, right? I think when you go to account planning, um, you see more diversity. Um, you see some diversity in account management, but especially on the creative side, it is time. It is time to reflect the society that we serve. And there's just not enough action in terms of, of that happening. And so I will tell you, any agency that is on my roster, I am actively engaged with that agency in talent management. I am asking them to see who are the creatives on my business. 
What are the development plans to get more diversity working on my business? And if they are not, that's actively a part of how they manage their bonus. So I think more and more advertisers have got, it's not enough just to have an employee base that's diverse. You have to have a creative world that is just as diverse as, as the society that you're, you're going after. And so it's true whether you're running a U.S. business. It's even more true if you're running a global business. And it's a big, big passion point of mine. How, how on the marketer side, how would you assess the progress um, in terms of diversity in, in marketing leadership in particular? A little bit better, but not that much so than the agency yeah. side, especially in the senior ranks. Um, I, still, I still do not see as much diversity as I think we need to. Um, I still think it is still a bit more male-dominated than it needs to be. I think it doesn't have as much diversity, whether it's diversity within the United States or bringing diversity outside of the United States. What people keep forgetting is we live in a digital world. So you think you're running advertising in America and no one else around the world is seeing it? That is absolutely not right. And so bringing in diversity of thinking, diversity of backgrounds, diversity of how you know, today's world is thinking, not having that is crazy. It's just crazy. So how do you approach hiring in your position right now? And where, how do you find your candidates right now? I look all over the world. I look at every agency I work with, every partner that I work with. You know, my, when I do networking, I'm not networking necessarily for me. I'm networking to meet people of diversity. And I'm literally, every time I'm talking to someone, I'm like, that person's going on my, I'm going to go after them list. Because we as leaders have to be active in finding these people. If you think they're going to show up in some sort of, you know, you're going to hire, you know, some sort of recruiting firm and they're going to go find it for you. Yeah, you got to go do that. But that's not enough. And it's not enough just to have, you should have development plans. I should have five, 10 year development plans because I want to get those people early and get their their careers to start moving into these at, at a faster rate than in the past. But then there's that, that third piece, which is I'm constantly on the lookout for great, diverse talent. And when I find them, I grab them. So on a personal level, I've read um, a little bit about your leadership style. And I, th- I think someone was, was quoted um, describing you um, as sort of a courageous leader, someone not afraid to take chances? Where does that come from? Um, so I, I had a, I had a manager once, uh, send me for my personal development to a coach and they kind of heard of my life story and said, yeah, you should be a drug addict, you know, you know, living on the street. Um, I've had a, I've had a crazy life. I've had a really, really crazy life. Um, you know, I'm an only child, lost my mother to a drunk driver when I was 14. You know, I, you know, my first, I've talked about this publicly. My first memory is that of abuse. Um, you know, I, I survived a violent marriage, couldn't have children, ultimately did, um, very hard. Um, you know, ha- ended up having twins. I have a daughter, beautiful daughter, who ended up getting cancer. Um, thank God she's in remission. But, I mean, I have, I don't know, I've, I've kind of faced adversity after adversity. And it's almost like, I've been trained by life. Um, you know, they used to say a street fighter, I call it a life fighter. Um, and you know, it's, I'm a little bit, you know, you, you can knock me down, but I'll, I'll wobble, but I'll stand back up again. And, you know, for someone who has gone through the knocks in my life that I have, and I've still been able to, to survive and thrive, um, there isn't a, 
there isn't a business problem that I see or I get hit with that I'm like, eh, that's surmountable. It'll be tough. We'll have to do it together. We'll have to learn. We'll have to change. We'll have to adapt. But we can get through it. And so I think it's that spirit that I bring to who I am as a person and who I am as a leader. Um, and that's what I call, you know, advancing through ambiguity. There's so much ambiguity in this world. Who knows what's going to hit you? So I try everywhere that I go to say, you know what, let's unlearn the past. Not everything what we, we've done in the past isn't going to get us forward. And let's, let's figure out how to relearn things that we need to, 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 to not only survive, but to thrive. So I found the quote I was looking for. Someone They said, dare to bring your personal experience to your work. Someone talking about you embodying that um, philosophy. Is that, does that sound like you? Yeah, I, I believe everyone should bring their whole self to work. My God, we have so many incredible experiences that if we leverage them as a collective, oh, there's, 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 there's nothing that we can't do together. Why do you think some people are afraid to do that? Because there is sort of a wall sometimes, right? You don't want to sure. share too much of yourself on your job. Um, well, you don't want to be too vulnerable, right? Some people. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think most people look, there's a few things. One, if you're that vulnerable, what if somebody takes advantage of it and they use it against you? That's always a fear, right? I think it's always a fear of how you will be judged. Will they look at me the same way? And these are real. These are absolutely real things. And I think everyone should be comfortable to share what they want to share. But sometimes you don't even have to share your personal experience to learn from your personal experience. So you don't have to, like, I, I talk about things publicly to give other women and other victims who have gone through crazy things in life to have courage. Not everybody has to do that. But what I tell everybody is, have you done your own SWOT analysis through your life experience? Do you truly know your strengths and your weaknesses? Not to fix your weaknesses, but figure out how to compensate for them. And do you know what your threats are so you can eliminate them? Because when you have threats, that makes you behave in ways you don't want to behave, right? And your opportunities is your gem. If you can truly understand your opportunities, find a mentor, find a coach, find experiences that unleashes those opportunities into, into incredible strengths, that's all you got to do. That's what I mean about bringing your whole self to work. You don't have to give them your life history, but be thoughtful about who you are from those experiences. So in the remaining time that we have, I want to end in a little bit of a lighter note. I've, I've read that you're a big sports fan. Is that, is that right? Massive, avid, yes. So how, how are you surviving? How have you survived okay. the past four months? Not well. So my poor son has probably got it from me. I mean, he, he has it a thousand times more than I do. And it's been brutal, brutal, which is why I think The Last Dance was, was so popular because people like, give me something, right? Give me something. Um, and I think, you know, now with the NBA coming back, um, even though we can't be in the stadium, it's worth watching. In India, you know, cricket's been going on. So, you know, we've been watching cricket from afar. Like, look, at this point, baseball, virtual people in the stands, who cares? Let's just get some, some sports going in a safe way, Right. Because, you know, sports, it gives us passion. It gives us energy. It, it brings people together. And, I, and I'm dying for more of this to happen. <laughs> so who are your teams? Who are your favorite teams? Oh, okay. Let's start with my hometown, Chi-Town. So we're talking the Bears, the Bulls, and the Cubs. Not a South Sider, even though I lived in the South Side, so I know it's not the Sox. So those are my top three teams, and they will always remain my top three teams no matter what city or place in the world I live, right? And then, of course, when it comes to cricket, and we're big cricket fans, you know, India, my hometown. So um, 
those are kind of the, the major teams that I root for. All right. Well, um, we could talk uh, a lot longer, I know, but we're, <laughs> we're out of time. So I want to thank you again uh, for your time and um, let, keep us updated on the app for sure and, and everything else as, you've, as you guys finish out uh, 2020. What a ride it's been, right? Oh, it certainly has. Thank you for, again for the opportunity. And please, everyone out there, stay safe. Please, you stay safe. Thank you, Anne. Take care. That was Ann Mukherjee, Chairman and CEO, North America at Pernod Ricard. My name is E.J. Schultz, Assistant Managing Editor for AdAge. I want to thank our producer, Max Sternlich, and invite you to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite player. Catch you next time.